Okay, everybody, thanks so much for your patience and bearing with us there. We have the technical issue all squared away, and so we are all set to begin. Uh, this is Matt Bieber with the Department of Health, and as usual, we have our three doctors with us, uh, DOH Acting Secretary David R. Scrace, DOH Deputy Secretary Lara Padahon, and DOH State Epidemiologist Christine Ross. So we'll begin today with um, some comments from Dr. Scrace, and then we'll rotate through all of our presenters before uh, concluding with the Q&A portion as usual. So with that, Dr. Scrace, please feel free to take it away. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Matt. Uh, thanks to all who are attending today. This is a tough time for New Mexico and we wanna get right to it. Brian, if I could have the next slide. Uh, this is the EPI report actually from yesterday. The Today's just came in yesterday. We had 1,137 cases today. It's 1,337, so 200 more. Yesterday, 470 hospitalizations. Today, 490, so numbers continue to go up. Uh, yesterday, 13, oh, sorry, yesterday, 11 deaths. Um, today, 13, one death is too many and we're seeing far too many deaths. You can see we're over 13.5% of the New Mexico population uh, who's been infected with COVID. About one out of every 16 people who gets um, an infection ends up hospitalized and about um, oh, 1.7 out of 100 actually who contract COVID die. The, the mortality rate in hospitals is running 19%. So some grim news today, things continue to get worse. Case counts particularly high in Bernalillo County at 385 today, Doniana 212 and San Juan in the highest number we've seen in a long time at 188. Next slide, please. Uh, since all of you have been calling us and asking us, uh, why are we seeing so many cases in New Mexico when our vaccination rate is so high? We've reorganized the press conference today to really focus on the three main things we think are driving that. Number one is Delta. As you know, it's a highly infectious uh, variant of COVID and it is wreaking havoc amongst unvaccinated New Mexicans. We have a little table from our vaccine report there at the bottom and the orange bars represent the 71.5% of uh, infections that are in unvaccinated people, the 76.9% of, uh, uh, of hospitalizations that are in unvaccinated people and the 95.1% of deaths that have occurred, occurred in the last four weeks in unvaccinated people. Second is we're gonna talk more today about the fact that <clears throat> maybe we've all gotten complacent with COVID safe practices, both as individuals, perhaps businesses, uh, large gatherings, and, and uh, we'll be going into that more. Uh, and then lastly, we'll wrap up uh, with some of the usual reports about hospitals, but I'm gonna talk a little bit about some very unique data that very few states have, but the New Mexico does, and what we're learning about waning immunity here in our state. So with that, we're gonna, uh, Go to, go to Laura Parajon, who will talk about um, Delta and unvaccinated New Mexicans and vaccines in general, Christine, on our COVID safe practices and, and epidemiologic trends, and then I'll wrap up as usual. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Laura. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, David. Yeah, a lot, very sobering today. Um, you know, full vaccine is still New Mexico's first priority because that is our best way to prevent hospitalizations and deaths 
vaccines are so amazing for that. Um, next slide. Um, that's why we continue to be super pleased with um, the vaccination rate slowly climbing, um, fully vaccinated back, um, New Mexicans over 18 years old at 73%, um, 55% of New Mexicans 12 to 17 year old are um, vaccinated. Right now it looks like 0.0% of New Mexicans 5 to 11 is just that the data is slowly coming in. And so we'll have more uh, to report on that, but kids have been getting vaccinated. Um, partially vaccinated New Mexicans that were at 83.2% of New Mexicans over 18 years old, 63.4% of New Mexicans 12 to 17, and then 0.5% of New Mexicans, that's our little kids, 5 to 11, getting vaccinated. Um, we have over 230,000 people, um, 18 and over, who have received a booster dose. So that's really good news for New Mexico. Uh, next slide. And thanks to all of you who are going out there and getting vaccinated. Um, we are having great progress, but you know, there's still many New Mexicans who remain unvaccinated. And you know, in this context, what you know David is sharing is, is that within this context, we only actually, if you look at all of New Mexico, New Mexico, 60.4% of all New Mexicans are vaccinated, but that also means 39.6% are unvaccinated. So the, the progress is good, but there's still groups of people who are getting sick with COVID and spreading um, the virus amongst um, the, the whole state. And then partially vaccinated, we're still at 30.4%. 5% unvaccinated. So, you know, I think that when we when we look at the whole picture of, of New Mexico, knowing that there are people who are unvaccinated um, is still driving high case rate despite the vaccination. So things to really look at and really think about how we can reach out to people, talk to our trusted um, people who are trusted in our community and, and get our answers question, uh, our questions answered about the vaccine. Uh, next slide. Um, so being able to make a vaccine appointment, we're trying to make it easier and easier to get a vaccine. You can still get appointments at vaccinenewmexico.org. We have thousands and thousands of appointments available. You can also schedule an appointment with your primary care provider if they have them or a pharmacy. Um, remember, you can get your flu shot at the same time. And once again, just talk to people, your providers, other people you trust if you have questions about the COVID-19 vaccine or about your eligibility for a booster dose, which is actually most of the people in New Mexico are eligible right now for a booster dose. Next slide. Um, also, for those of you, once again, we just want to call out, as always, and thank our call center um, here in New, Mexican, New Mexico for people without access to a website. Um, the call center really wants to support all of you out there without internet or ability to schedule online. Um, option three or nine takes our callers directly to Spanish speakers. And 8 to 8 p.m. is when we have our, um, our site open, and it's open Monday through Sunday. So uh, let's go to booster dose administration in New Mexico. Um, this is really important, especially um, David will talk more about some of the immunity issues right now. But if you see the next slide, you can see that um, we are we started with uh, the Pfizer and Moderna additional doses for people who are immunocompromised. 
And then um, after in, in September, the Pfizer booster dose was approved. And then in October, all three vaccines are approved for boosters, meaning now you can mix and match. You can get a, if you have a Pfizer, you can get a booster dose of a, a Moderna or J&J. So we've had over 220 thousand doses administered so far. And so that's really, really good news because the booster will help for waning immunity. Next slide. Um, one of the things that is really, really worrisome to us, and we are very, very worried and concerned right now, is, is that if you see on the slide to the right, you can see the green line is our 65 and overs. And so for people who are 65 and over, initially, you know, when we didn't have vaccine, you could see um, high case rates, but then they started coming down after so many of our 65 year olds and over got the vaccine. But as you can see, our case rate for 65 and overs are increasing. And actually, in fact, all groups are increasing in age groups, but the 65 and overs are the most vulnerable. So we really, really ask if you are 65 and over, please sign up for a booster dose today at vaccinenewmexico.org or call for scheduling an appointment. If you have difficulty um, on our website, you can also see that you can get Lyft or Uber if you have trouble with transportation. So um, we really think that's one of the things that can really make a difference right now. Next slide. Um, one of the things is that we are texting people to, um, you know, remind them if they if they are eligible to get their booster. Um, but if you have already gotten your booster and you got it at a pharmacy and you had originally registered in our registration app, um, you can actually go into the registration app so you don't continue getting text messages. So you can edit your vaccine history at vaccinenewmexico.org. And if you click vaccine history, you can update and, sh and, and that'll say, you know, you got the three vaccines and then we won't text you anymore. So this is just a little tip for those of you who are getting messages and you've already gotten your boosters. Next slide. Um, here's an update for the vaccines for five to 11 year olds. So we are excited about vaccinated five to 11 year olds because they are the next biggest unvaccinated group we have um, and children can get very sick from COVID. COVID in children is generally milder than adults, but some kids can still get really sick and require hospitalization. Um, Delta in the whole country has resulted in a five times increase in child COVID-19 hospitalizations and the virus can actually cause death or long-term complications. And yes, there are one, you know, David's reminding me, there are 188,866 kids in New Mexico who can get vaccinated. And I know some of them already did, so we're excited about that. Uh, next slide. Um, the vaccines have been sh shown and proven to really help prevent the spread of the virus. Children can spread like COVID-19 if they do get infected. And oftentimes they're asymptomatic, meaning they don't have any symptoms. So they could be spreading it and you don't even know that. So getting vaccinated can really help protect your loved ones and your community. Um, so when kids get it, they don't spread it to people who are maybe immune compromised and didn't mount a good response or maybe they're unvaccinated. Um, it can help prevent variants from developing and mutating because the virus does go to people who don't have 
uh, who, who haven't had COVID yet and, and mutate. So, um, and vaccines just allow kids to be kids again, you know, just having them return to their normal activities and not having to worry about getting COVID. Next slide. Um, the COVID-19 vaccine um, for kids is safe and effective. Once again, the trials, the safety trials showed that it was 91% effective and super safe for kids. It's a third of the adult dose. And remember, it's two doses, three weeks apart to become fully protected. Um, so one dose isn't enough. You know, some people are getting just one dose, but really you need two doses to have the effect of preventing hospitalizations and deaths. Um, the mild side effects um, of the dose is because it's lower and they kind of seem to have less effects than the older children. Um, once again, just a reminder that the vaccine is free to every single person, doesn't require insurance, doesn't require identification. So please uh, go and get the vaccine for your kids and for yourself if you haven't gotten it yet. Next slide. Um, we're adding more appointments every day for five to 11 year olds. Um, as of the ninth, 42% um, of our appointments for five to 11 year olds were filled and uh, vaccines uh, continue to be delivered to New Mexico and more appointments are added each day. So we really continue to appreciate your patient as doses, patients as doses arrive, but um, we are getting more doses every day. So, um, and there's plenty of slots still available. Next slide. Um, one, one thing is we've gotten a lot of questions about the pediatric Pfizer and birthdays. So let's say your child is gonna turn 12 years old between their first and second dose. They can either do the pediatric Pfizer, which is an orange top, or the adult Pfizer, which is a purple top. So those of you who have kids five to 11, just always remember it's the orange top. If you, you can always ask them like, did I get the orange top? And if you're turning 12, you can get either one. And that's like three weeks. So like, let's say you're turning 12 in three weeks, you can choose either one or you're just turned 12. So uh, just a little reminder for those who are turning 12 out there. Um, one thing that we're also wanting to share is addressing health misinformation. Um, one of the things we've seen in the COVID pandemic is um, so much information and how do you know what information is helpful and what information is harmful. So recently the Surgeon General put out a community toolkit for addressing health misinformation. And the link is on here in case people wanna get it um, afterwards. Next slide. And it's a cute little, um, it's a cute little health mis misinformation guide that actually is really easy to read and just shares about information, misinformation being information that is false, inaccurate or misleading that can cause serious harm. And we know that during the pandemic, there have been a lot of cases of misinformation causing certain people to maybe not want to get vaccinated. So getting that information could be so helpful. So the toolkit really helps the community understand, identify and help stop misinformation and help identify information that actually can improve our health. And it gives great tips for talking with family and friends and community about misinformation, like really listening empathizing, uh, pointing to credible sources, um, never publicly shaming anybody or shaming anybody for that matter, being judgy and using inclusive language. So we hope these tools can actually help us to continue to share the message of, of keeping our community safe. Okay, and now I wanna turn it over to uh, Dr. Christine Ross. So thank you, Christine.
Bert. Thank you so much, uh, Laura. Um, uh, and thanks for the opportunity to let me uh, have uh, this chance to speak with you all. Um, so I'm going to start uh, just quickly mentioning what's happening uh, globally. Um, and I think we can sum it up in, in, by one statement. Uh, the, the pandemic is far from over. Um, globally, we're seeing a rise in case rates, and this is primarily driven by uh, Eastern Europe. Um, there are countries such as Russia, um, which are seeing higher case rates now that, than they had seen in, in, a, in a very, very long time. And what's unfortunate in, in certain countries where vaccine, vaccination coverage is really low, again, I will mention a country like Russia, where I, the, the latest numbers I knew, there was about one in three Russians vaccinated. The death rates are also quite elevated. Um, Case rates are, are driven by Europe in general, so most activity is in Eastern Europe, um, but we're also seeing countries in Western Europe um, with uh, surging case rates right now, places with really high uh, vaccination coverage. Um, and th this is uh, certainly uh, a complicated issue, uh, but we know um, it, it looks like these, these surges are primarily driven by Delta. And I think the difference here is that we're seeing um, lower hospitalizations and lower deaths when you compare to countries um, that are seeing surges that have uh, much lower vaccination coverage. Now, the United States as a whole, we saw quite a, a surge of cases related to Delta, which began in about July. And uh, most folks uh, in the United States are now getting a, or, or some counties anyway, are getting a bit of a reprieve now. Um, and we were seeing a decline in this peak of, of, of cases that we were seeing from Delta. Um, it looks like that downward trajectory is slowing and we might see the United States reach a bit of a plateau. So that's something that we're going to keep an eye on. Um, but why this is slowing and why we're seeing a plateau, um, this is because we're seeing rising incidents in some areas of the United States, including New Mexico. And so I think we'll go to the next slide. Okay, so this is our statewide epi curve. And one thing I want to mention is, is New Mexico is not alone. Uh, there are other states seeing um, a rise in uh, incidents or case rates. I believe the entire Four Corners right now. I think parts of California, um, uh, the Northwest are still seeing some pretty high case rates. So we're certainly not alone. And when you look at um, the level of community transmission across the United States, states, 80% um, of counties in the United States are still seeing high levels or substantial levels of, of, uh, of community transmission. So here in New Mexico, we know we also began to see a surge related to the highly infectious variant of Delta. And we were, we sort of hit a peak there. You see that on the right hand of the slide. We started to trend downward, um, but then we hit a plateau and now we are seeing uh, rising incidents or a rise in our case rate. So this is very, very concerning. This is certainly not the direction we want to go in. And I don't think I have these slides, so I'm just gonna mention them briefly. Uh, we're seeing very high um, 
case rates across the state. So th this is uh, from uh, the Northwest uh, to the Southwest um, to the Metro region. These are high levels uh, of case rates. And I believe I'll be able to show you later our, our level of community transmission map um, where you'll see every single county is sitting in, the, except for perhaps one or two are sitting in the red. Um, so let's go ahead and go to the next slide. So this is just a blow up of that statewide epi curve where we plot the number of cases each day um, and um, sort of trend, we're able to see the trends over time by using these epi curves. So this is just a blow up of the recent six week activity and why we do that is so you can really uh, zone in on that seven day moving average, which is that dotted black line. And you can see that this is, it had plateaued and now it's slowly rising. Okay, next slide. And this is another really important metric that we keep a very close eye on. And this is the test positivity. Um, and we've, we've uh, rolled this into what, what we call a seven day rolling average. And this is plotted over time. And you can see that we had a very high uh, test uh, positivity, or in other words, out of everyone that comes out and gets a test, how many uh, are positive? And then we look at that as a percentage. And you can see that we were quite high in the winter. We trended down um, in the spring and then the summer. And then again, when uh, Delta became the predominant variant in New Mexico, we began to see rising incidents or case rate. And then we began to see this climb in our uh, test percent positivity, which is, is now up to 11.8%, so, so very high. And so what this tells us um, is that we do need to see more folks get tested. Um, and um, we also, it just tells us that we have a lot of burden of disease right now um, in our communities. So next slide. And so this is what I mentioned briefly. Um, this is um, a table and a map that we produce uh, using our uh, COVID-19 surveillance data. And we calculate um, a case rate um, and a, a test percent positivity for each county. And then there is a table which, which shows you what our cutoff is to call something high versus uh, substantial um, all the way down to low. And you can see we're unfortunately in a sea of red and I see one county now that, that is in orange, which we still consider substantial uh, level of community transmission. And you can see we've, we've um, we've uh, put the highest, uh, so the county with the highest case rate at the top, and then you go down from there. And so you can see right now, we have very high case rates in DeBaca, Grant, San Juan, Lincoln, Colfax, and then just on down the line. And again, I wanna emphasize, even across the United States, uh, if you look at this at the county level in the United States, about 80% uh, of counties are, are in, are uh, considered um, in the high level or the substantial uh, level. So even though some places are now seeing a reprieve with uh, decreasing case rates, we still have a lot of, uh, of activity here of this uh, Delta variant in the United States. So next slide. And I think there was a question on this last week 
um, which went to Secretary Scrace, and I think he did a really good job at answering it. So I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but this just um, explains how do we calculate a case rate, which is really a basic measure of uh, the frequency of a disease. And it takes into consideration the number of cases and population size. And then um, we, we calculate this out per 100,000 of population so that you can easily compare large and smaller counts and ha have an idea of the level of activity in, in that uh, county. So I think at this time, I'm gonna turn over to Secretary Scrace, who is going to do the remainder of the slides. Um, thanks, Christine. Um, the next one is a bunch of layers of Swiss cheese. Are you sure you don't wanna do this one, Christine? Okay, I'm sorry. I, maybe I, I got the order wrong. So uh -huh. I think um, the, the point of this slide is to just say, you know, we, we haven't, I think there's been a lot of emphasis on, um, on um, the hope that we could obtain um, herd immunity. And, and there, that has not been demonstrated um, uh, in any country uh, to date, even with much higher um, vaccine coverage than we have here in, in the United States. And so we really wanna emphasize, it's really, really important to protect yourself, um, whether you are vaccinated or not. At, with this high level of uh, disease activity in our community, we really need to layer our uh, prevention uh, measures. So um, the I think the Swiss cheese is, is uh, a, a really cute uh, pictorial there, but it it's basically uh, trying to emphasize that you want to layer things on top of each other to get the full protection. So certainly vaccination, uh, we think is our way out of this pandemic and is the number one way to protect yourself. But that alone, is not going to um, uh, keep you, give you the highest degree of protection. There are things you can add on to that, and that includes wearing a mask when you're indoors, trying to avoid crowds and um, poorly ventilated um, uh, places, um, uh, physical distancing, etc. So I think the take home message is, is that we just wanted to re-emphasize that although um, vaccines are the most powerful tool we, we have right now and highly effective at uh, preventing serious illness, including hospitalization and death, uh, with this high level of, of uh, disease activity in our communities, we want you to really consider adding on these additional layers of protection um, for yourself and your family. If we all together um, really focus on um, these COVID safe practices, we think we can turn this trend uh, around and in the right direction. So let me see. Um, David, I, I now I'm, I think the next slide might be yours. Uh -huh. Yep, I think it is. Thanks. So before I get into vaccine breakthrough cases, I want to point out that you all today are going to see some data that very few people in the United States are seeing. And it's because of the ability of our epidemiologists and the system they've created to track every patient, to link them to each vaccine and to measure time intervals. Uh, we're excited about this, although in some ways um, it's good that we know it. In other ways, there's a little bit of bad news here, but I think the um, 
The follow-up good news is there are interventions we can do to address this issue. So if we go to the next slide, it, you're going to really like, uh, uh, well, actually, let me do this slide first. Just a review, we showed this at the beginning. Orange here is the number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in people in New Mexico who have not been vaccinated. Very sobering that 95% of the deaths um, are uh, in unvaccinated people. And blue are the number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in New Mexico in vaccinated individuals. And in fact, you can see we've had 7,479 cases in vaccinated individuals just in the past four weeks, less hospitalizations, and we believe the vaccine still is effective, uh, even though uh, vaccinated patients are getting cases because it largely and fairly dramatically presents, uh, prevents hospitalizations and even more dramatically deaths. Remember that there are twice as many New Mexicans at risk here in the blue group because we're two thirds of us are immunized or if you take all New Mexicans, 60%, but uh, you can see that how that breaks out. So let's talk about the blue for a minute and go to the next slide. Uh, this is our epidemiologic data. This is a little uh, complicated, so I wanna walk it through. So on the X axis, uh, if you look there, you can see that we've got the, uh, the specimen collection date, and that's the date at which uh, someone may have become, uh, had a positive test. We go by the date that their specimen was turned in, not when the result comes back. And so you can see, we go all the way back to January 14th, all the way through to the present. And each blue dot on this graph is a vaccinated New Mexican who has tested positive for COVID. So each blue dot on this whole graph. Now on the y-axis, we have the number of days it was between when somebody got their final dose of their vaccine and when they tested positive. And so that's the y-axis. And, and there's a diagonal line uh, that sort of, this is a triangle because of course you can't, uh, you know, if, if it's been two months since you're back, uh, it's, it's a triangle because uh, first you get vaccinated and then you have the positive test. So uh, only the, uh, the amount, you can't have a case uh, before you get vaccinated. Otherwise, you would not be a blue dot on this graph. Now, if you squint a little bit and sit back, you'll notice that there's this dark blue trapezoid in the upper right-hand corner. It's kind of spotty if you watch across here from January to uh, late June. And then all of a sudden, and Brianna, we practice this, we'll show you a line, uh, a vertical line, where there's this new frontier where spotty uh, dots turn into solid dots. And Brianna, we can't see, there we go. Okay, so no, it's that one. The up and the, no, let's do the vertical one first. So what happened there? If you go down to the um, x-axis, you'll see that's right about mid-July when the Delta variant took over. So going from left to right, you can see, wow, something really happened. It was very different in July. And, that, and we all know the new variant came in it's now 100% of all of our cases. It's twice as infectious as it was before. 
On the other hand, if you go from the bottom up, you'll notice a diagonal line that seems to be much more prominent uh, in, oh, let's just say late July all the way through the present. And that what that shows is as people's backs, day, the number of days between when they got their last shot and their case goes up, more and more people uh, seem to be infected. Now, still, if we had a, a, a similar map of unvaccinated people, it would just be a giant solid blue triangle. So we still have some in individual dots here, but you can see that something else is going on. So left to right, the Delta variant hits us in early, mid-July. Bottom to top, there's this waning, there's this increased number of cases. And if you look in the lower right-hand corner, and I have a bigger version so I can read this on my other screen, the average amount of time for a vaccine breakthrough case in New Mexico is 163 0.4 days, which works out to about five and a half months. Now, the median, if we have statisticians watching, and I know we do because I always get commentary from the statisticians after each press conference, uh, correcting statistics sometimes, but just adding additional perspective. The median is 170, very close, 5.6 months. So what we're learning is people start becoming more likely to get a vaccine breakthrough infection at about five and a half months. Now, uh, it turns out that if you are vaccinated, at least up to this point, your chances of having a breakthrough infection are very low. They range between one and a half and two and a half percent. So uh, out of a thousand people somewhere who are vaccinated, only 15 to 25 will get a breakthrough infection, relatively small number. But what we're learning is that immunity does wane. We're seeing it in our data. And what this means for us is we all need to start getting in line to get a booster. Uh, we're working with the CDC on their guidelines. They can be confusing. Uh, it, for sure, you need to be 18 and over. For sure, you have to have at least two months since your J&J &J vaccine under your belt or six months for Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, if you were watching really closely, Laura showed a slide that showed our peak vaccination rate, which was in the 140,000 per week range occurred in April. Well, here we are six months later, a little bit more in October, November. So it makes sense that we're now seeing more of those vaccine breakthrough cases. Uh, the antidote to that, of course, is getting the booster shot. So a strong pitch today for getting the booster shot. You can go online, the DOH website and get signed up. You can reference the criteria uh, through a link on the DOH website, but you can also just plain make an appointment for that booster shot, encouraging all New Mexicans, and particularly, as Laura said, those 65 and older to get first in line, and then all of the rest of us after that. Next slide. So again, just my hats off to our epidemiology folks for having this data and enabling us to analyze it and reach these conclusions. This is kind of a, a similar graph from Israel. I had a couple of very complicated New England Journal of Medicine slides and uh, my colleagues convinced me that they were not that easily explainable, but you can see in Israel for the, the period of the vaccine, uh, where, and they started just like us in December, this sharp uptick in July that happened, and again, right about six months. So, uh, you know, note, please make a note, please make an appointment. And, you know, Christine and I talk about this all the time, but 
I think Christine's version I really like is this is a three shot series. If it's Moderna or Pfizer, uh, you know, those of us in healthcare get a hepatitis V vaccine. Yeah, we get it in month one, the first month, the second month, and then seven months, six months after that, very similar to this. So for me, when I got my booster last month, I considered it my third shot in my primary series. Time will tell if we need uh, other uh, more, uh, you know, other boosters going forward. We just have no way of knowing that now. Okay, let's move on and update you all on hospitalizations and deaths. Again, not very good news with hospitalizations. Next slide, please. Uh, you can see uh, we continue to be quite red in most areas. Uh, and you can see our graph continues to journey up into the crisis standards of care on the right there. Now, last week, San Juan Regional Medical Center did declare crisis standards of care. Uh, and while no other hospitals have declared that, I'm in conversations with uh, uh, multiple systems in New Mexico we're considering that today. So our hospital teams are really uh, stretched uh, thin and they are seeing way more patients than they thought possible. ICU occupancy rates are over 120% and, we're, and we are struggling to try to make ends meet. I wanna make sure that people understand uh, what this means. You know, and I don't know how many people are watching this press conference, uh, but what it means is if one of the people watching this press conference has a heart attack right now, there's a good chance that we won't have an intensive care unit bed for that person here in New Mexico. So this connection between the COVID safe practices and keeping ourselves safe and getting vaccinated and getting boosters and all those things, there were those different slices of Swiss cheese connects directly to our hospital personnel and what they are really up against right now and handling this uh, overwhelming load of patients. Next slide. Uh, you know, I've been presenting these maps for a while. You're probably all yawning a little bit about them. Today, it's in the fine print. We don't have the big red numbers, but we only have eight ICU beds in the state. That was yesterday at three. Those all filled up pretty quickly last night. Maybe there's a few discharges today. We have not been in single digits. Colorado is over a thousand ICU beds was panicking when they only had a hundred ICU beds open. And so uh, this is a really serious time. Uh, again, general medical surgical beds for COVID patients, hard to read, but I think it's 51 uh, open beds. That's open beds are trending downward, full beds trending upwards. So, and a lot of transfers with respect to, uh, now let's go to the next slide. Um, and we'll, uh, and then uh, to make matters worse, our hospitalization projections from Presbyterian, which are the shaded area, uh, shaded colors there, blue uh, is all hospital admissions projected to continue to go up for the next two weeks. Hospital ICU uh, bed capacity, it just on a teeny bit, but the fact is we're full, so it can't go upwards. We can't, we can't have any more ICU hospital, uh, bed hospitalizations because the system is full. Next slide, please. In order to uh, try to deal with this, we're doing a lot of work with the federal government and we also, the state has uh, acquired uh, or executed a contract with an outside staffing agency. And you can see we are sending staff to some of the largest areas of need here in the state, 281 new folks coming in. 
This is reimbursed by FEMA and San Juan Regional Medical Center, where we're having large numbers of people that they can't take care of. So transferring to other parts of the state, including even Las Cruces, uh, they have a DMAT team that's included in their numbers, about 40 people that the feds are providing healthcare workers, nurses primarily, and other technicians and pharmacists to help them through the surge they're experiencing. It is very, very high in the Northwest. Again, to point out that um, the Northwest was one of the first and leaders, particularly due to IHS, to get their population vaccinated. And again, with the Northwest, we're now uh, six months out from when the majority of people receive their primary and secondary doses of the vaccine or their one J&J shot. Uh, just a reminder, because I keep talking about six months, that booster for J&J is at two months. So every, every time I say six months later, I'm referring to Pfizer, uh, Moderna, which are the two messenger RNA vaccines. New, pair, uh, new, new side, please. Uh, deaths, again, uh, we seem to be on this plateau. That's good if you're not one of the people in uh, one of those blue bars still seeing as many uh, uh, coming in, seven, eight, to th as today, 13. And we will probably uh, backfill some of these numbers, but we believe we are at a plateau. Uh, the best plateau for deaths, of course, would be zero. Uh, having 45 to 50 a week, not a good place to be. And again, for every single person who passes from coronavirus, there's 10 to 20 New Mexicans who are friends and family of those individuals. So a much broader impact in our state. Next slide, please, Brianna. Uh, we're gonna talk about treatments, some good news there. You know, in our modeling team yesterday, you can go to the next slide. We talked about the fact that the monoclonal antibody treatments had had a dramatic effect on reducing hospitalizations. You might be thinking, well, why, why, why is it so great if our hospitals are completely full? And what the modelers are saying is, we would have had a lot, lot more patients were it not for getting more people treated with monoclonal antibodies. Remdesivir continues to get up to record numbers of treatment. That's the inpatient antiviral medicine for moderately ill people who've already been admitted. But more importantly, the monoclonal antibodies are for anybody with a positive COVID test, symptoms who either is 60, uh, 65 or older or is obese or has any risk factor for coronavirus. And so again, if you get a positive test, your next step should be to seek out immediately uh, with your provider. If you're having symptoms and you meet one of these other criteria, uh, being older, being obese, or having one of those underlying conditions, please call your provider right away and get scheduled for treatment. There's a third uh, monoclonal antibody out. We're setting up the reporting system for that limited use so far but we'll be adding that to our numbers in the very near future. Okay, let's move on. I think we're almost uh, to the finish line. Oh yeah, we've got some, I want to shout out to Guadalupe, Guadalupe Hospital, very tiny hospital in Santa Rosa. Uh, Christine, if you're listening, fantastic job ramping up on monoclonal antibody uh, treatment. GIMC, who's in our top five pretty much every week, Gerald Champion, and you'll notice that some of these places with the high monoclonal antibodies are also in the same locations that the state is sending staffing resources to try to help out for the same reason, that those treatments to avoid hospitalizations are being done in higher numbers because 
hospitals are getting full. Also, Carlsbad uh, Medical Center, thank you for your participation in Memorial down in Las Cruces. Uh, again, uh, everyone is ramping up their antibody administration. This does, it's the singular thing other than vaccination that can turn the tide against our up, uptick here in, in a short period of time. All of those COVID safe practices can turn the tide uh, in the long run. Next slide, please. Uh, so let me just sum it all up. We told you that, you know, you, the reporters, you're all asking us questions. Why, if with New Mexico, such a great vaccination rate, why are we seeing this persistent uptick in cases when neighboring states are not? So just remember that any rise in the number of cases, no matter what the reason, puts more pressure on our hospitals. Those are already full and they're coming up on flu season and, and uh, you know, this surge of COVID patients. So as Christine said, this pandemic is not over. Anyone who's not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. If you haven't had your booster, please uh, go online and schedule one. And uh, we need to understand that we're uh, entering in a phase where we're gonna have to pay even more attention to COVID and trying to stop the spread as we are now. So calling on all of you to help us. Final slide is similar to uh, the usual Final slide, we're, we're not done with this. Um, you know, get tested, please get tested. We don't have enough testing going on today. It was 11.8 in Christine's graph over the past seven days. It's 11.9% today. Uh, so get tested if you have any concerns, symptoms, or exposures. If you have a positive test, get treatment to avoid hospitalization. And please be careful, masking, distancing, particularly indoors, there is a public health order. It does have the force of law to it. We're seeing a lot of places around the state where people simply abandon the use of indoor masks. And as you do go into an indoor setting that's not your home without a mask, or you see other people without a mask, I want you to remember that that being inside without a mask is a primary reason why if one of us has a heart attack today, who's listening to this presentation, there probably won't be an ICU bed for you. So with that, uh, I don't mean to be grim today, but the situation is tough. I'm gonna to turn it back to you, Matt, to uh, uh, lead our question and answer session. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Scrace. And with that, uh, our normal format, uh, please go ahead and raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question. I see that a couple of folks have dropped questions in the chat so that I'll, I'll just uh, read those out uh, when the time comes. Uh, and just a reminder, uh, if you can just do one question at a time and we'll cycle through the list as many times as necessary in order to make sure that everybody gets to ask their questions. So with that, uh, we will start with Dan Boyd, followed by Michael McDevitt, and then Julia Goldberg. And when I call on you, please just uh, say the name of your outlet as well, if you don't mind. Thanks so much. Uh, Dan, you are unmuted. Yeah, good afternoon. Good to, good to see you all uh, virtually, like always. Um, Wanted to ask, I think Dr. Strace, you talked a little bit about maybe compliance with COVID safe practices being an issue uh, uh, amid this recent surge in cases. Obviously the state's current public health orders is set to expire Friday. Wanted to see if you uh, had any insights as to whether there may be some changes or revisions uh, to that, uh, you know, given where we're at and kind of the direction things are going. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think if you remember, I said what's the case rate gets down below 10 100,000. And I, if I uh, 
we'll take another look at that. I think we're at 66 uh, today, so more than six times the level. We do plan to renew the indoor masking in the public health order. We're making some minor revisions to reporting requirements for hospitals, nursing homes, and uh, assisted living facilities. They've been reporting weekly. We've gotten great data from them. We didn't share it with you today. You've seen it every week. We'll probably have them report to us monthly going forward. And then we will uh, get, share that information with you for sure. Uh, as of this week, uh, looking across the country to see other interventions that other, other states are doing, but New Mexico seems to be in the lead. And, and the one thing I, I would just remind you, I know we've talked about this before, Dan, is I, I think one of the most important criteria for a public health intervention is it has to be something that we can really live with going forward. This battle against COVID, it's, it's not a roller coaster that's going to go up and down one more time, and then we're going to be fine. We're going to see as the virus mutates and, and creates new variants, uh, additional challenges. And so, as, I, as I've said before, I think indoor masking, uh, while not everybody likes it, is something that if everyone did it would make a big difference. I think return to school, you know, uh, is an example of something we have to do to, uh, because we can't really live with the pandemic, with kids just going to school, uh, you know, from home, uh, the learning is not as good. And, and so we're carefully weighing those, but there isn't anything else on the docket. And, and even that thing I said about uh, <clears throat> uh, reporting for healthcare facilities, uh, we're not, uh, that probably won't even be in the public health order. We've, we're just advising facilities that, who are reporting now that they can report on a monthly basis. So sorry, I don't have anything more additional to add. I'm, I'm so, so looking forward to answering this question again, when our case counts are down below 10 per 100,000. And I think we probably will have uh, things to talk about then, but you know, we, we're on the way up and we're, this is not the time to relax, um, relax our uh, current public health orders. One last thing too, is that because of the way that federal revenue uh, comes to New Mexico during the national public health emergency, for uh, to the extent, let me think of another way to say it. As long as there's a public health emergency at the national level, there will be some form of public health order in New Mexico of a state of an emergency. So those two go hand in hand. And so, uh, but what's in the public health order is really what you're getting at. And that that may vary as we hopefully see more adherence to COVID safe practices and uh, and and more people getting vaccinated and more and everyone getting a booster and a resultant decline in the uh, case counts. Thanks, Dan. Anything thanks, else I, to add? You know, I may have another question uh, later, but I'll, I'll wait till everyone has a chance to. Okay, thanks, Dan. Okay, next we'll turn to Michael McDevitt, followed by Julia Goldberg, followed by Juno Ogle. Michael, you are unmuted. I see that Michael lowered his hand, so he may not wish to ask a question any longer. Um, Julia, go ahead. 
Thanks, Matt. Uh, this is Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter. Um, thanks for taking the first of a couple of questions. I've had a lot from readers this week, but this is my question. Um, I was wondering uh, if you could tease out for me a little bit. Um, you, Dr. Trace, you showed the percentage in the past four weeks of cases um, among the vaccinated versus unvaccinated. The differential between the cumulative and the past four weeks at 80.4% for cases versus 71.6%, is that is there a proportionality with the increased number of people vaccinated? What piece of that is sort of waning immunity versus um, deterioration of infection control? And I guess the, the end game of my question is, how do you think that that would change if boosters got to what percentage or what, what level. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I think I think the fundamental core of your question probably is impossible to answer, but Christine and I will still have stuff to say about it. So uh, the first thing I would say is the one thing you left out is Delta and the emergence of that variant. I think that's what's driving actually a, a prominent uh, <clears throat> factor in driving infections in both. Um, the... Uh, uh, infections in both unvaccinated and vaccinated people. Second, in terms of waning immunity, we still have to sort that out. But obviously, uh, that whole pandemic period of time includes, let, let's just say for me, um, you know, I, I'd be in, in the, I, I'm, I'm not on the vaccine breakthrough list, but, you know, I, I had just gotten my shots in January. And so that, that, my lack of infection in January, February, March, April, May, June is all is sort of included in that uh, in that overall group, and and so I'm one of those people in the what would it be 98 or 97 and a half to 98 and a half percent of vaccinated people who have not gotten a COVID infection. But there's no question that hospitalization case rates, hospitalization rates, are going up in vaccinated people and individual, and on that vaccine, uh, the vaccination report. After the little blue and turquoise bars, there's some graphs that show a profound uptick in unvaccinated people uh, in terms of uh, cases and a, a gentle uptick, which is what you're asking about in, uh, in vaccinated individuals. I don't know, Christine, what else would you say to shed light on this proportionality question? Well, I think if I'm understanding correctly, I, I think the question was what's happening between the cumulative and then the most recent four week. And I think um, I, I'm not able to pull the report up at the at the moment, but well, I can. I, okay, and if you look at that, you you can you can track it over time. And I and I think what um, I don't have anything new to say, but just to add what you just said is that I think by uh, surveillance data and also. Uh, data um, from from various sources, um, we do know that uh, about six months to eight months out from that second shot of mRNA uh, vaccine type, you do uh, have a decrease in vaccine effectiveness at, at against prevention of infection, um, and and that's why we are where we are with the booster uh, recommendations, and and so I think again we're we're accumulating evidence as we go along because we're in the middle of a pandemic. So it doesn't mean that the vaccines 
um, are not an incredibly powerful tool. They are, um, but I think what we have found out is, is that we're gonna we're gonna need this shot at about six months out, eight months out, um, and it, that's why we're really imploring people to 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 get out and get that booster shot. But you slowly over time are are seeing that proportion of uh, of individuals that are vaccinated uh, turn up positive. Um, but I think it's really important to mention, though, even even though we're seeing this rise in incidents or, or cases among uh, over time among people that are vaccinated, um, uh, many of these infections are, are quite mild. Um, uh, many of them do not result in hospitalization uh, and certainly uh do not result in death. So it's just really important to emphasize that, that these vaccines remain highly effective at preventing these serious outcomes. Um, and then I think, David, you also alluded to, certainly, you know, our, our risk-taking behavior is changing over time um, because we're so far into this. And, you know, what, what we were willing to do initially with, you know, sheltering, sheltering in place and, and avoiding gatherings and crowds, it's very hard um, uh, for, for all of us <laughs> to continue with that same um, level of restriction on our lives. So there's certainly more opportunity uh, for the virus to transmit. Folks are getting together, they're gathering, they're traveling, uh, et cetera. And then when you put that together with Delta, it's, it's just a perfect storm. Yeah, and I, I would add one more thing, Julia, uh, the epidemiologist, that, that little blue dot graph I showed you is part of a, a, a new report on vaccine breakthrough that we are vetting with the modeling team this week and hope to put online next week because we didn't think there were enough reports that you could ask us questions about and we wanted to add just one more just you know so I, re you I requested that report this morning yeah okay good great um so i'm going to actually turn back to michael mcdevitt realize that he did in fact want to answer ask a question so michael you are unmuted hi all uh, this is michael mcdevitt from the las cruces sun news thank you for speaking this afternoon um, going back to uh, Dan's question about the mask order and, and your intent to renew it, um, do you believe the state is doing enough to enforce the mask mandate at this stage in the pandemic? I know from personal experience down here in Las Cruces, I see quite a few businesses that have um, completely decided to enforce it uh, among their own staff and customers, and it almost seems like every other business I walk into is not enforcing it. And, um, I know from um, our own police and sheriff's office here that they haven't done a lot of enforcement. So is that something that needs to happen, especially as our area seems to um, be highly in, in test positivity? Yeah, Michael, we had a little trouble with your audio, but I think I got the gist of your question. I, and it was, is the state doing enough to enforce mask orders? I think there are two additional questions. One, are individuals themselves doing enough to enforce the mask orders by wearing their masks? And the answer that's probably no. Uh, we don't encourage individual A to try to enforce the mask order on individual B, because uh, that can result, result in confrontation, injury, and death, as has been seen in other states. On the other hand, uh, and then the next question is, are communities doing enough to enforce the mask order? And uh, and uh, so I don't know the answer. It sounds like in your community, 
Uh, perhaps there's room for improvement. The state simply can't enforce every single mask, uh, you know, infraction. Uh, there are reporting uh, online. Uh, our environment department does actually through OSHA get involved in workplace violations. You know, sometimes, I mean, I actually get text messages of a picture of someone on the Santa Fe Plaza without a mask and like, that's it. So that's not really actionable information unless I happen to be on the Santa Fe Plaza. And probably I would actually be willing to go up and flash my DOH badge and say something. I'm known for that in the community. So I think this it's a balance between individual responsibility, community responsibility, and state responsibility. Uh, we can't uh, be everywhere at every time. We try to respond to complaints and we'll continue to do that. And, and I, also, uh, I also think that this is gonna really involve a cultural change in how we think about wearing masks and protection. I know other states, um, interestingly, New York, I know is a state, San Francisco is a city. You know, if you have to show your vaccine passport uh, to get into a restaurant or to get into a concert or do things like that. So, uh, you know, we're looking at everything everybody's doing. I think the trouble is there's limited data on the absolute effectiveness of vaccine passports, for example, We've got a ton of evidence on masks. So I think we all ought to pitch in and do a little bit more to step up at the individual community uh, level. And at the state level, I, I'm committed to uh, actually ensuring we enforce it. We're sending out a, uh, a letter today to an organization that did not enforce a large gathering event. Uh, and most people were not wearing masks and, and, the, and that uh, is a $5,000 fine. So it is our intention to continue to try to do everything we can to, to one, convince people it's a good thing to do and enforce where that becomes ineffective. Long answer, but it's kind of a complicated question. And obviously the fact that there, people's political beliefs bleed over into whether or not they wear a mask or whether or not they get vaccinated, and not everybody, but some people, that makes it even more complicated as well. Okay, uh, next we'll turn to Juno Ogle, followed by Scott Weiland and then Brittany Costello. Juno, you are unmuted. Hi, yes, Juno Ogle with the Roswell Daily Record. Thanks again for allowing us this opportunity for questions. Um, my question is about the test to stay program that Secretary Steinhaus talked about last week, but I hope it's, it's one that you, you guys can address. Um, the Roswell School District, uh, one of their concerns with the program, they're, they're very eager to do it, but one of their concerns is about the supply of the rapid testing kits that they'll be using. They've already encountered some issues with not being able to get as many tests as, as they have ordered. Their supplier said, this is all we can send you. Um, and they're just concerned that with the potential number of students that they may have to test in this program, they won't be able to keep enough on hand to, to meet the requirements uh, as well as doing the uh, uh, surveillance testing for staff at the same time. Um, are you hearing this concern from other school districts and what can be done, what can the state government or even the federal government do uh, 
to maybe help out with, with that supply issue. Yeah, I think, you know, in Alamogordo, the very first day we did this, we thought, wow, this is going to be a bigger project than we thought because we had so many positive uh, cases. The availability of rapid testing has been the subject of a, a lot of White House and, and governor's meetings. And uh, uh, obviously, the program only works if we have the testing materials. We have a very diverse, very diverse testing system in New Mexico, one of the most robust in the country. And so I think that, uh, you know, we have a capacity to do additional PCRs. We can do an additional with existing capacity, probably 8,000 tests a day in the state. So uh, I'm going <clears> to <throat> say that much. Our chief medical officer, Tom Massaro, is working with uh, public education to get this program up and running. Uh, we still have that pilot in Alamogordo looking to spread it soon and, and laura any additional comments yeah i mean supply? yeah we sure yeah we've been working a lot with the with the different providers on trying to get more rapid antigen testing which is kind of the basis for the for the test to stay because you can test them really rapidly get the results pull the kids out um so we are working on that that supply chain right now so um I'm, I'm, I feel pretty confident that we'll have enough supply chain. It's true that the rapid antigen test has been a little bit, um, there has been some delays in getting them out, but I, I, the, the other states that have been able to do this have not had a huge supply chain issue. So I think we'll be okay. And, and we can still use PCR. It's not as real time, but it is a little bit more accurate. And so, um, and we're, our test turnaround time is now down to like 30 hours on average statewide, best it's ever been. So uh, if we need to get use that as a backup, we can. Thanks. All right, next we'll turn to Scott Weiland, followed by Brittany Costello, followed by Morgan Lee. And Morgan, I know you dropped uh, some questions in the chat. I'm guessing you're going to ask them out loud, but uh, if you need the assistance with the ones in the chat, just let me know. Uh, Scott, you are unmuted. Yes, Scott Weiland, reporter with Santa Fe, New Mexican. And yeah, thanks for taking our questions. Uh, yeah, you've said that uh, you've referred to, yeah, we, we've all got pandemic fatigue. And, but then, you know, the other, and then you say, you know, get out, get your boosters as soon as you can, but it's still limited. So most of us still aren't eligible. So I guess considering that and then winter's coming up and the holidays, Kind of at what point to you know do do cases have to rise before you might consider bringing back some kind of um, additional restrictions like you know maybe reconsider uh, the the tier system we were on for a while because uh, it does seem like it does, it's still varying somewhat county to county so one county you know go back to one county being restricted more depending on their spread and that sort of thing or is it just off the table is this just something we're not going to go back to because we're all burned out on restrictions well i mean i think that's a great question and uh i think that we're not i think what we're trying to do is not avoid public health directives because we're burned out uh, we're trying to find that middle path that allows people to live relatively normal lives that restores the economy that allows kids to get education and at the same time minimizes the risk. I think with Delta, a virus that's two to four times as infectious, I think none of us here 
would probably be willing to prove that we were uh, being two to four times more cautious than we were prior to July 1st when we go out, if we do go out and, and do those sorts of things. Um, you know, I think the question about a tiered system or a county level system is kind of hypothetical when the whole map is read. And uh, I think as case counts come down, we're going to consider every option. But again, uh, this isn't sort of an on-off roller coaster. It's a, um, you know, this is something we're going to have to learn to live with and we're going to have COVID with us probably for years. Uh, you know, in, at the end of the influenza pandemic, I say this every time, so I apologize for the repeat, but, you know, in 1920, people thought, well, thank God, you know, influenza's over and we're still getting, you know, yearly vaccines now. So I, I'm hoping that you all will uh, uh, be patient with us. I think we're we're looking to find the most effective ways of doing things. Uh, we don't have major uh, restrictions on the table or under discussion right now. I think in the end, the things that really will help New Mexico are more people being vaccinated, more people getting boosters. And by the way, we are really uh, we're really pushing. Uh, I think pretty effectively with the CDC and the federal government about the complexity of the booster guidelines. You know, if, if I had my say, I would uh, want everyone in New Mexico uh, to get a booster, you know, right away, if, as long as they're 18 or over and two months up from their J&J &J or six months up from their Pfizer and Moderna. So we're working it that way as well with our regulators and the CDC and the feds to, to see, is there a way to expand uh, uh, our vaccination efforts here in New Mexico with respect to boosters? So, so I mean, that's kind of a summary, but right now we don't have a secret list of things we plan to launch. And it isn't that we're unwilling to do them because we're tired. It's because when people get tired, um, we think that they're less likely to comply. One last thing, and that is there is one entity that is not fatigued at all with COVID and is in fact energized and accelerating its work. And that is the virus itself. And so it, you know, because the virus is more infectious and spreading more rapidly, we don't really have the option to give up. We just have to find evidence-based ways of controlling spread, many of which we already know. And as you pointed out, and we've pointed out, we're just not doing. Thanks. Yep. All right, thank you everybody. Uh, next we'll turn to Brittany Costello followed by Morgan Lee. And then um, at that point I'll have lowered everybody's hands and then I'll just announce round two and everybody can raise their hands again. Uh, so Brittany, you are unmuted. Go ahead and ask your question. Hi, Brittany Costello with KOB News 4. Um, quick question about the kids five to 11. I'm wondering um, if you can talk to me about um, so far the the kids who have been vaccinated, I think it was around 1300 with the first dose on whether or not you, you think that is a, is a good response um, to the, to the, that age group opening up eligibility. And then I wanted to also ask about on the dashboard, I saw that 35 to 11 year olds were fully vaccinated. So I'm wondering um, were they, if, if they were part of a study or why, since we haven't, that hasn't been an option for, for three weeks, if you could touch on that. 
Yeah. Um, I, you know, actually, I'm not really quite sure about the kids who say that it's have fully vaccinated. I can check on that and then get back to you. But in terms of the response, we had about um, 4% of the child population, 5 to 11, respond to getting vaccinated that first week. And that's about that, um, you know, the at, at least the number of scheduled appointments, sorry, for the first week was about 4%. And uh, it takes a little bit of time before the NIMSYS, which is the immunization system we use, takes several days before it like appears that you become vaccinated. So we're just using, I'm just using scheduled appointments as kind of a marker. So out of the scheduled appointments we've had this week, we it's about 4%, which is kind of similar to what we had with the 12 to 15 year old response for getting vaccines. So we expect that this week, this whole week, that we're having this week, maybe the holiday might affect it, but you know, um, we're expecting another, you know, 5% of kids to get vaccinated for a total probably 10% to 15% of that population. So I think it is still, um, it's still good. We do wanna encourage more kids to get vaccinated because we still have a lot of appointments left um, available. I think out of, let's see, so far we have 9,550, three kids with scheduled appointments um, in the coming weeks, and we still have 11,672 appointments available. So definitely like if you do have a kid, you can get them signed up. And, um, and then also, you know, more and more sites are getting onboarded as they get their vaccine doses, especially pharmacies. Pharmacies were a little bit later to get started, so. Yeah, and I would just add too that we patterned our whole rule, a lot of the uh, five to 11, vaccines after the 12 to 15 vaccines mm -hmm. and the 12 to 15 curve started out kind of flat for four or five days until everybody sort of got figured out what was going on and then went up very sharp, sharply and leveled off. So there isn't much difference actually where we are now today compared to where we were uh, mm -hmm. with uh, 12 to 15, except for that one um, supply the delivery from the feds to the pharmacies that was a little delayed. So I, th I think for sure we'll see it pick up. A lot of parents wanting to protect them, their kids. And Brittany, I can actually answer your question about the, the group uh, of, of kids who are fully vaccinated. Uh, yes, yeah, some of them were part of trials. And then others, uh, there appear to have been a few cases in which dates of birth were misentered. Not entirely sure if that was at the, the individual level at the, or at the provider level, but our data quality folks are sorting that out now. So thanks for pointing that out. Uh, next, we'll turn to Morgan Lee. Hi, uh, hoping you can hear me. Thanks for this opportunity. Um, I just wonder if you could hone in a little bit on the northwest of the state and San Juan Regional Med Medical Center and explain what um, those crisis standards of care, what that translates into in terms of resources, additional medical staff, and perhaps procedures that are sidelined. Uh, I don't know if you can name some of the hospitals you mentioned that might be on the brink, whether that's Gallup or other places in the state. Um, and uh, yeah, or in terms of vaccination rates, thank you. Uh, I'm gonna just start real briefly because uh, others have a lot to say about this. Um, Morgan, you snuck in about six questions there. So, <laughs> uh, so I can't say who the other hospitals are, who are considering it's really up to them to make that announcement once they're done with their deliberations. So 
apologize for that. What crisis standards of care means in any hospital when it's declared, and this would of course apply to San Juan, is that they no longer have the resources they need to take care of the population that's presenting themselves for care. So um, I, I, we talked a little bit earlier about 70 some additional personnel that the states and the federal government is bringing into San Juan to try to help uh, with their crisis, additional uh, nurses and other technicians. I think there's some physicians in there too between the federal uh, DMAT team that's been sent out there and our staffing contract, another 70 people. Transfer rates from the Northwest though have been uh, at all time highs this past week. Uh, and so uh, that's, we always see that when someone gets saturated, their rate of transfers from their ER to other hospitals, either in-state or out, goes way up. And we did see that actually late last week and this week um, as well from the north, from the, all the hospitals of the Northwest, uh, but from um, San Juan Regional Medical Center in particular. As far as demographics of, uh, um, of the vaccine, uh, that's Laura's expertise. And it turns out that Christine was just in Farmington uh, a week or two ago, and maybe uh, the two of them can give us some perspective uh, from from uh, those points of view. Thanks. Uh, Christine? Yeah, I think that was just last week. Um, yes, I uh, I met with um, the, the team there at, at the hospital, and I, I would just say oh, they are amazing, and they are really, really tired, <laughs> just really, really, really tired. Um, I think, um, you know, one of the main challenges that they were dealing with was it wasn't a, a bed availability issue. It was, it, they couldn't staff the beds. So there's, there's been real challenges uh, with um, finding adequate staff. So the, the, the message that I have received is, is the uh, surge staffing that the state was able to uh, send out there along with the federal team, it's making a, a real difference. Um, but I just wanna say those folks are, are real uh, amazing healthcare heroes and they've been uh, really at this for a long time. And um, I, I, they're very, very tired. And I, I know that they were having uh, community meetings uh, to talk to uh, various community community leaders uh, to try to pull together and, you know, really get the message out that, that the hospital was, was really overwhelmed and struggling. And there was just a lot of concern for uh, the residents uh, there in the county uh, that they were seeing such high numbers of, of people uh, still coming into the hospital with COVID. And then as David has alluded to before as well, it, it's now, you know, there's a lot of delayed care uh, from the pandemic. So you get this mix of, of uh, seeing some really sick people for non-COVID related reasons together uh, with a surge in, in the COVID uh, specific uh, patients. And it's, it's just been overwhelming. Thanks. Laura, do you want to talk about demographics of vaccine? Because we do certainly have, uh, as usual, more data than anyone can imagine. <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, so, um, yeah, thanks to the amazing data teams we have across our uh, Department of Health, including the Public Health Division and the Epidemiology Response Division. So um, here's our vaccine equity data on race and ethnicity and geography. 
And so that's done every week. And it looks at um, geographic vaccine disparity by race and ethnicity. So you can go to the website, which is the one that David always pulls up. So I'm just pulling up the vaccine uh, reports here. And so if you go down to this set, you can see, for instance, let's just take San Juan for his example. So for um, American Indian populations, uh, San Juan is vaccinated 22.6% above their population share of, of, at this week, in this week. So out of all the people who got vaccinated, what share of the population has um, more of the share out of 100%, so that's 22.6% for San Juan. Um, for Black or African American populations as a smaller population, it's negative 0.2%, so lower than their share. Um, and then for Hispanic and Latino population, um, that's negative 0.9, you know, negative. So that much percent less than their share of people who are there. And then um, for Asian Pacific Islanders, that's 0.4%. And this is all like per your population. And then here for um, white populations, it's negative 12.9%. So you can just see in terms of geographically, per that region of San Juan, we have less people who are of white population race ethnicity being vaccinated in that region. Um, and I don't know how that's translating in terms of hospitalizations and deaths, but um, it could also, you know, I, I don't know, perhaps um, Christine's team would be able to pull that out, but that's the data we share for vaccine. So we can know where to kind of address racial and ethnic disparities for vaccine. Yeah, and, I, and just a reminder that if you go to the DOH homepage, there's that purple strip across the top. It says medical and scientific reports hovered there. I always tell you to go to the epidemiology reports, but the one right below that is a wonderful, very, very detailed report that Laura's team puts out every week with this vaccination data. And there are some, there are some uh, reports under EPI for demographic and race and ethnicity information. I'm not sure they're broken down all the way to the county level, but we have good data there as well. Thanks. Great. Uh, so I think that completes our first round of questions. So everybody feel free to raise your hand again if you'd like to ask another one. I see two so far and then I see, uh, Morgan, I see you added a question in the chat also. So uh, perhaps raise your hand and ask the question directly if you're able. Um, so we'll start with uh, Brittany Costello, followed by Julia Goldberg, followed by Dan Boyd here in our second round. Brittany, you are unmuted. Hi, thanks again. Um, I wanted to ask about boosters and, and the fact, obviously, that we're seeing more cases, as you guys mentioned, the waning immunity. I'm wondering, have you guys considered, or are you considering holding some of those like mass vaccination booster um, events, just because I know that people have said they get the message and then they have to go in and schedule a time and it's just maybe more complicated um, than easy. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, we have had, we have some um, larger vaccine sites that we put out for boosters, but in the next few weeks, we'll actually be trying to pull some larger sites. One of the issues we've had is, is that um, I think we just signed a contract with Expo right now, but like one of the issues we've had is that things are still going on now, right? The conferences are still going on, there's activities. So before, you know, before things opened up, 
we were able to use like Expo and the conference centers all around the state. And now those are being utilized. So we actually are looking, um, we've, we have been working and finding new locations for those larger vaccination sites. So we're hoping by next week, we'll have some several contracts signed so that there'll be more opportunities for boosters as well as larger sites for five to 11 year olds. So that's, uh, uh, you know, that'll be, hopefully we'll have more to report next week um, as we get these sites lined up, but we will be having more larger sites um, in, the, in the near future. Also, just to follow up on one of Scott Weiland's comments in his question, we don't, we don't have a restriction on vaccine in terms of the supply that we have. So that's not a worry. You can get, if every, you know, every uh, New Mexican who wanted to be uh, given a booster, we can get those vaccines. So that's not a rate limiting step anymore like it was um, 10 months ago. Correct. We have plenty of doses. We just have fewer venues, but our pharmacists have been doing a super good job that, that they actually represent approximately, I think, 50 to 60 percent of all doses given. So um, they've just, yeah, shout out to the pharmacies. They've been really doing a lot of the vaccines. And then our public health department has been doing a lot as well. So, um, yeah, hopefully we'll have more sites in the next few weeks. Thanks, everybody. All right, next we'll turn to Julia Goldberg, followed by Dan Boyd. Julia, you are- Oh, wait, one second. I just also want to mention there are thousands of open appointments for booster doses too. There are over, I believe, over 30,000 slots available. So there's a lot of slots throughout the state. Yeah, just sorry, I just forgot to mention that as well. Well, thanks for adding that. Mm -hmm. Julia, you should be unmuted and ready to ask your question. Thanks, Matt, and thanks again. Um, I had a question about, I know that um, you've talked a lot about uh, Delta as being um, highly in, and more infectious, but is there any, it, do you think that you're seeing data that shows that it's also causing more severe illness for people who are either are or not vaccinated? And I asked that because there were two data points. I sent them ahead of time, and I don't know why I'm trying to interpret things. I don't understand, but the health and Social report on page three shows a, a kind of decline in cases among those who have underlying conditions. And then the mortality rate shows on page 11 an increase of deaths of people who did not have underlying conditions. And I guess I wondered if that pointed towards any kind of change in the characteristic of how people are getting COVID or suffering from COVID and if that was variant related. Uh uh, oh, Christine, you can comment too, but the CDC did put out a report a couple of weeks ago that conformed to our experience here in New Mexico that in general, Delta did not carry with it a higher rate of severe disease. Uh, by rate, I mean <clears throat> your chances of ending up in the hospital uh, or dying don't appear to be higher. On the other hand, if something is more infectious, then a lot more people get infected. So it but if, from a pure rate point of view, I think the CDC paper sort of showed, and of course our data was in that, uh, contributed to that paper, that there didn't seem to be those kind of increases in hospitalizations. Like we remember we talked about in the summer in Ontario and Scotland and places like that. Anything you want to add, Christine? 
I should say, maybe I should have asked this more open-endedly, which is what does this indicate, this change, <laughs> the change in um, cases and deaths as it relates to people who do not have underlying conditions? You know, the only thing, I, sure, the only thing I would add is we, we have really high uh, vaccine coverage for, for individuals 65 and older. And, you know, early on, um, you know, th that population, especially uh, uh, 75 and older, um, individuals who were residing in long-term care, you know, we had really high rates uh, of, of disease and hospitalization and, and death. And one fantastic thing we're seeing is that, you know, we have really high vaccine coverage in individuals 65 and over. And so we're not seeing um, those folks with, um, uh, we're, we're not seeing uh, um, increased rates uh, as we had seen prior. Uh, in other words, when you look at uh, cases in long-term care, um, they're just dramatically uh, decreased uh, compared to uh, early on in the pandemic. And, you know, as we age, we, we acquire uh, these underlying conditions. So, so individuals are much more likely to have multiple uh, comorbidities uh, as we, we get through uh, as we as we age. Um, I think there was a really low um, uh, proportion of uh, cases with reported with comorbidities for November. I'm not sure if that's what you were looking at, but that's really incomplete. So I, I would expect that would change um, as we as we move through the month. Um, and then otherwise, I would just I, I think David answers answered the first part of that. Um, about the CDC data. Is that what you're asking about, Julia, that downtick? Uh, yes, I was. that's what I was looking at. Okay, yeah, yeah. a lot of those underlying conditions get backfilled as Can well. Can I just point, point out one other thing is that we know, I think, I believe Laura mentioned this early on, um, you know, school-age children um, as a group uh, don't have uh, chronic don't have these underlying conditions uh, in, in high numbers as we see in elderly. And, you know, early on, uh, school-aged children made up about 10% of our cases. And now with Delta, and certainly with also with the resumption of, of in-person school, um, uh, school-aged children are making up about uh, 20, 23% of our cases. And, and then that's gonna drive down that proportion with underlying conditions as well. Got it, thank you so much. All right, great, next we'll turn to Dan Boyd. And I do notice that um, we don't have any other questions, excuse me, hands raised. So uh, after Dan goes, I'll just give it a, I'll open the doors and if anyone wants to do a third round, we can do that. And otherwise we'll aim to wrap up at that point. Dan, you are unmuted. Thanks again, and a lot of information to, to digest here today. I, I wanted to ask actually about a, a story that was in the, the Santa Fe, New Mexican, about a, a teacher in Santa Fe possibly uh, exposing or infecting some unvaccinated students in the classroom. Um, some parents expressing frustration that they don't know the teacher's vaccine status. Um, obviously, teachers are required to either be vaccinated or, or undergo the weekly testing, but was wondering if, if you all maybe had any thoughts on on that and, and just kind of as a maybe uh, a general situation and maybe specifics as well, but. Yeah, I'll start um, just 
So I'm trying to, I did not see the article, so apologize for that in advance. If you wanna drop the link in the chat, one of us can scan it quickly. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what the parents would do with the information about the teacher's vaccine status. It's, you know, uh, right now, I think schools are pushing really hard to get staff and student uh, uh, staff, which includes teachers vaccinated, uh, still working on that across the state. But uh, what what would be that um, intervention that parents would make? And I guess the cases, to me, it's I understand like the special nature of schools and kids and teachers, but to me, there's a broader question about should everyone's vaccination status be public or private? You know, we can't shut up here on this press conference about the fact that we've all gotten our vaccines, but we're doing that to just sort of, you know, let people know that they're safe and effective. So I don't know. I have to think about that. But I think we thought, you know, as a doctor, maybe you're asking the wrong group of people. Maybe you should ask a press conference full of lawyers, because I think all your doctors are going to say, hey, someone's vaccine, vaccine status, that's part of the me their medical record, their personal health history. That's confidential. I'd get fined $50,000 if I uh, gave away confidential health information. So I think you're raising a really big, you know, sort of question that goes beyond schools. And I, I don't know if I have much more to say or feel like, like, comfortable, I'm not an ethicist, so comfortable diving any deeper than just that initial reaction. But Christine and Laura, if you have any other comments on that, that would be fine. Yeah, I mean, I I just like kind of glanced over the article right now. And um, I guess, you know, like David said, the concern is, is that if your teacher's unvaccinated, you know, how are your kids protected? And I think that one of the things we can do that is within our power right now is to vaccinate our five to 11 year old kids, you know, encourage the mask wearing that they do in the schools and, um, you know, ha have as adults vaccinated to protect all of us. Um, but I, I, you know, yeah, it's, it's hard to say to the school, right, you have to do this Right now, that's not a mandate that has come from the federal government or anything. So I think that we just have to keep on encouraging people, teachers, you know, to get the information. Um, you know, they they might have hesitancies as well or questions. So as we can keep on answering people's questions and 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 build their confidence for for the vaccine. I don't know. Christine probably has more to say as well. On this oh, no, the, the only thing I, I was just going to say, that's a, that's a great question. I have school age children that, that definitely resonates with me. Um, and I, I think, um, I, you know, I, I, I can't really address it directly. Um, the, I don't have anything new to add, but the only other thing I would mention is that, you know, I, I hope to see, uh, 
the test and stay program rollout uh, and, uh, here in Santa Fe as well. And, um, and I, I don't know all the details of the story which you just relayed, but um, uh, if, if uh, children that had been exposed were able to test and stay in the classroom, that would have been a really nice option. Um, uh, and again, I, I'm sorry that doesn't address the, the, the specific question at hand, but I, I would like to put a plug in to say that this is, it, 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 it's an exciting program and I'm, I'm really gonna be following it, following it closely as it rolls out and um, hope to see it roll out uh, um, very soon. Thank you, I appreciate it. Looks like a couple more hands have gone up, so uh, this would be a good moment if you're interested in asking a, a question in, in a third and I think probably final round of questions here. Now, please do raise your hands. Otherwise, we'll treat those raised hands as the as the final questions for the day. Uh, so, Scott Weiland, we will turn next to you, and then it looks like Julia would like to ask another question, uh, and then we'll see where we are. Scott, you are unmuted. Feel free to ask your question. Can you hear, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. I didn't get the unmute option this time. Um, yeah. First, I just want to throw in: I'm the person who wrote the article. Oh. So oh, the uh, so I, what what I got from the parents, uh, and I'm not going to pose this as a question, just because I didn't seem like you quite touched on on what the whole issue here. Mm -hmm. They they thought that yeah they understand that you know it's confidentiality. There's a right to confidentiality, but then they felt that it had it should be balanced with uh, knowledge of parents being able you know having that knowledge and deciding whether you know they should send their children into a classroom with an unvaccinated teacher. So I don't know what kind of options would be available parents to send them elsewhere, but they just felt that, you know, that's something that they should uh, be privy to. In this case, it's the fact that it is a virus that can be spread. Uh, so it's not like cancer, you know, that's a, you can say that's a personal issue, but this is something that can be transmitted. So it kind of puts it on a different level. So that was their argument. My question is, uh, is, is, uh, Considering that the transmission or the yeah the infection rate's pretty high in Donyanya and Bernalillo County, any chance uh, that there could be federal teams going there, or are there already going there? Yeah, Brianna, could you bring up the um, that map slide that I showed with? Uh, yeah, there we've got team. We've got contracted employees that the states arrange for for the hospitals. Uh, in both Doniana and Bernalillo, probably expanding Bernalillo even more. And uh, Rihanna, our, um, we, we can show that. But one point I neglected to mention is the state is able to act as an intermediary for these staffing augmentations throughout the state and have that reimbursed with federal dollars 100% uh, through FEMA. And I'm told that uh, FEMA extended that 100% payment for pandemic response for another three months. So that'll go through uh, March of next year as well. Um, I might be able to alternatively, if Brianna's having trouble sharing her screen. Oh, I have it right here. I should have just done it. Uh, let me just show that map one more time because that kind of Clarifies it. Of course, I have to get back to Zoom now to show the map. All right, here we go. Yeah, so you can see here the uh, 
that they're going at various points during the state. We did an overall assessment of need about a month ago, asked all the hospitals to tell us how short they were. We tried to prioritize resources, but you can see, uh, this is an older slide. So the, the San Juan number was actually in the 70s when we added the DMAT team, but you can see 59 here in, uh, in Las Cruces, uh, specifically to your question, 34 in Otero and other uh, Southern counties heavily represented in the staffing initiative the state is sponsoring here. I'm sorry, that was a slightly outdated slide. Okay, Dr. Scrace, are you still looking for information or comfortable going on to the next No, question? I'm good, I'm good moving on. I know the okay. number was in the 70s, so that's okay. Got it, okie doke. Uh, next, we'll turn to Julia Goldberg, followed by Brittany Costello. Julia, you are unmuted. Uh, thanks, Matt. Um, I heard from a, quite a few people this week who were kind of wondering if they could get more of a drill down about what you're seeing in terms of uh, activities in which people are engaging prior to contracting COVID. I, that health and social characteristics report used to include uh, those reporting activities prior to illness. I don't think it has since the summer, and I don't know if it's still relevant, but I didn't know if you could offer any um, thoughts on what if there are any trends that you're seeing in terms of is it travel? Is it going to church? Is it gyms? That sort of thing. Thank you. Well, I'll start with my high-level, very high-level summary. Julia, my high-level summary is that everybody who gets COVID is doing everything. And so Christine can give you a little bit more nuanced uh, version of that. But it's remember when people would have like one contact or 1.2 contacts? I mean, a lot of people doing a lot of things to the point that it's it's, it's weighing down our contact tracing effort because it takes so long to get a single case in with everything they've done. But Christine, any more detail? Sure. So, you know, when the Delta surge hit in the summer, we had to, to make some changes so we could increase the number of people that we were able to reach. And so we, we really streamlined our, our script, or in other words, the questions that we were asking. Um, I don't think that asking those questions uh, at this point in time are, are actionable. Um, really early on, uh, it was... Uh, uh, useful data to get a sense uh, as to, to where, where people, you know, uh, what were the activities that they were reporting that would be possible uh, um, uh, transmission events. A transmission event could have occurred there. Um, but over time, uh, the data became less actionable. And certainly when you have this number of cases and when you have um, a myriad of activity options, <laughs> let's put it that way. And so what we find is uh, there isn't any clear trend. Uh, there is travel inside the state, outside the state. There is attendance at events. There are gatherings in the home. Uh, there is uh, church going. Uh, I just, anything um, pre-pandemic uh, that, um, that we were doing as part of our daily lives, uh, most folks are reporting. Um, um, there's there's a minority of people who can say I'm I'm pretty sure this is where I got infected, and so they 
Well, let me say not a minority. There's a good number because they'll have some sense of where they think it occurred. And so um, where they think they may have been exposed. Um, so we're, we're sort of switching gears. And instead of collecting a long uh, list of, of places, um, we want to uh, start making that question uh, less uh, um, uh, we're not going to try to gather that data. We're going to ask the person directly, what do you think? Where do you think this most likely occurred? But I think the take home message is, is um, it's very, very difficult uh, oftentimes to pinpoint exactly uh, where that infection was acquired um, uh, because people tend to list um, uh, many uh, activities or events. And certainly now. Thanks. That's it. Okay, um, one final question from, oh, we do have a couple more questions uh, coming in now. Uh, Brittany Costello, I believe you would have been next. You're unmuted. Hi, um, hi again, thank you. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask about the concerns about the Moderna vaccine, if you guys are aware of those um, with some countries kind of discouraging the, the Moderna vaccine for people under 30 um, related to some of those heart concerns. I didn't know if you guys could comment on that. Yeah, uh, somebody said that to us in advance. So thanks uh, very much because I don't read the French newspapers anymore. And uh, yeah, the, it's so we don't have access to the data that uh, it's a French health authority uh, not exactly a governing body, but they make recommendations and they're looking at data and they advised people under 30 to avoid Moderna. Now, Christine is really familiar with our, um, you know, our national data review uh, body and, and, and the fact that they looked at the same data. So maybe I'll let her just comment on that. So I think that there there is a, a, an association between the messenger RNA vaccines and um, something called myocarditis or uh, uh, pericarditis, and um, uh, there's uh, this uh, body of evidence was just recently reviewed by. Um, uh, the ACIP, and then before that, uh, the FDA. And so um, I can't comment specifically on what the what the French have are had decided to do. Um, but I think uh, we what we wanted to do was push out information on this to say, hey, um, this has been um, identified. Um, it occurs uh, a very uh, rare. And um, I was going to try to pull up the, the actual data on that, uh, on the number of uh, reported cases per million doses of mRNA uh, vaccine administered. There's, there's uh, specific numbers uh, that I would share if I could find them. Um, uh, it's a very uh, relatively very rare event. And um, what the ACIP did was look at the, the body of evidence of what's the benefit of the mRNA uh, uh, vaccine uh, versus the risk of this uh, uh, rare uh, complication. And I think what else is important to know is that um, uh, the cases that have been identified in the United States, uh, the majority have been uh, mild. Um, they uh, have resolved with um, uh, 
rest. Uh, um, um, and uh, I think uh, the risk is uh, has been uh, identified in um, a certain age group, uh, primarily under 40. Um, and I think the highest rates uh, in um, males uh, between a certain age range, I, I believe, 18 to 25, uh, somewhere around there. And, um, but again, these are, these are uh, rare events. And what was determined is that the risk of acquiring COVID um, uh, and the benefits of the vaccine far outweigh uh, the risk of this uh, rare complication, which uh, generally is, is, is self-limiting. Um, and so I'm not sure I, if I can answer directly what um, the countries, uh, European countries have, have elected to do, um, but here we are offering mRNA. Um, uh, uh, we haven't limited it in the same way that you just mentioned. And I just also put a link in there too, to um, what the American Academy of Pediatrics and a lot of other um, academies of physicians and nurses and public health um, doctors have, you know, supported the the vaccine findings that it's actually um, you you can't get myocarditis, but it's much more mild than actually getting COVID and getting myocarditis from COVID. And I think as a mom and also, you know, as a mom and also as a family doctor that treat children, you know, I think that you know, when you look at that data, you, you, you know, yeah, you'd have a pause and then you're like, well, actually it is worse that your kid get, you know, myocarditis and then, then if you just got it from the, the vaccine. And so I, I, both my boys got it <laughs> and they fall in that age group. Thanks everybody. Uh, Jeffrey Plant has his hand raised. So Jeffrey, uh, feel free to ask a question. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I have a question uh, similar to to the uh, the question about the uh, vaccination status of teachers, but in a different context. I recently heard from a, a vaccinated woman who fits in the uh, 65 and older demographic who went to the hospital for what she described as a minor surgery. And after being prepped by uh, a nurse or a nursing assistant, uh, she learned that that person was not vaccinated. Uh, the woman who had the surgery, you know, she felt that this put her in danger, that it was a risk she hadn't signed on for. Uh, but she was told by the hospital that the, the hospital doesn't have any uh, right to ask uh, their staff to disclose their vaccination status, et cetera. And I just wanted to ask you all, uh, as medical professionals with extensive knowledge of COVID-19, uh, should unvaccinated nurses and other clinical staff be interacting with surgical patients? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And I'm going to assume that it happened relatively recently and not like before the public health order. I think it was around August 15th or thereabouts requiring hospitals to report vaccination for all employees. So that's right. Yes. Okay. So if that happened recently, Somebody somewhere got some bad information. Hospitals have been reporting to us weekly and soon to be monthly uh, for most of them. Uh, since September, uh, we know that n I think it's about almost, these are going to be rounded numbers, but pretty accurate. 90% of hospital workers are vaccinated fully, 2% partially vaccinated, and about 7% have a exemption and, and there's only 
0.6% left who have no exemption at all or no vaccination. And they're in the process of being actually required to be dismissed from their roles. So not only do hospitals have a right to ask employees about their vaccination status, they have a responsibility to do it. And they have a responsibility to report that accurate information uh, to the state. The state, as you probably know, is a regulator uh, for licensing for hospitals and does periodic site visits. And we'll, we will be reviewing all that data on vaccination status for healthcare workers um, when we do those site visits on a periodic basis. And so I think there's just some confusion there. I think it's hard to, uh, I think it's an interesting concept that someone uh, would have had a different point of view about getting surgery if they known someone wasn't uh, vaccinated. Uh, there could be some market pressure. You know, I, it would be kind of cool if hospitals started advertising 100% of employees vaccinated or, or something like that. But according to the public health order, that unvaccinated person must be getting weekly uh, testing and, and only in the instance that they have an exemption, an approved medical or religious exemption. If they don't have a medical exemption, they don't have a religious exemption, and they're unvaccinated and working in patient care, uh, that violates the public health order. Okay, I don't see any additional hands raised, but I'll put out that last opportunity. Uh, anyone might like to ask a last question today? Going once, going twice. Okay, with that, I think we'll turn it back over to our principals for final comments. I think we'll go in the order of uh, Dr. Ross, Dr. Potahone, and Dr. Scrace. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I, I think um, I just want to add that I, I think living uh, with COVID-19, uh, and, and this is certainly from a from a epidemiologist's perspective, uh, but uh, living with this uh, virus means uh, being aware of, of uh, the level of disease activity around you because you can then modulate um, your, your uh, behavior um, in ways to uh, um, protect yourself. So I think it's just really important to understand that right now we have really, um, uh, um, we are very concerning levels of, of case rate and a rising incidence uh, around us. And, and so I would just implore everyone to, to um, uh, consider um, all of those COVID safe practices, um, consider um, whether um, you want to avoid uh, indoor activities uh, in public, whether you can avoid uh, crowded areas. I would also say, look at the type of mask you're wearing. I would use the, the best type of ma mask that, uh, that you can. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, an ill-fitting mask that's not over your nose and your mouth is, is not really doing its job at all. Um, and so that's important to, to consider. And then uh, physical distancing, hand hygiene, and then um, anyone who's not vaccinated, I hope you'll consider going out and getting vaccinated. And then I just want to wait, make one other comment. If you've had COVID-19, um, uh, we, we do know that you have some natural level of immunity um, for a certain length of time. Uh, what we don't know is that, you know, it varies by what sort of uh, uh, infection you had or, uh, you know, was it a mild infection, moderate infection? And then it may uh, vary 
uh, based on your own immune system. So even if you've had COVID-19, that's why we recommend you go out and get a vaccine um, because you'll you'll increase your level of protection and um, and we believe it's it's uh, um, the safest thing uh, for you. So let me pause there and turn that over to uh, um, Laura now. Yeah, no, thanks, Christine. I echo everything you say and just really saying thanks again to all of you for sharing the message. And really, it's up to us how this pandemic turns out. So, you know, what can we all each do ourselves and together as a community? So thanks for all you're doing. Get your boosters, get your first vaccines, get your 5 to 11 vaccines. And uh, thanks for all you're doing. Yeah, and I would just close by thanking everybody for your attention, your time listening in great questions again today cause us to drill down even further into our data and we love to do that uh, i would say as well that um, on the uh, <clears throat> on the boosters you can go online and schedule an appointment we have lots of appointments more mass fax events to come soon particularly if you're over 65 or meet one of those criteria like over 18 with an underlying condition which basically is um, those two groups, and then people working in high-risk occupations where they interact with the public. I mean, we're we're over 70% of New Mexicans already eligible for the booster. And this team on the call today and others are working with the feds to see if we can't get that expanded even, even further. So um, get the booster and uh, be careful and just ask yourself again this question, am I being two to four times as careful this year, given that the virus is two to four times infectious, as infectious as I was last year at this time when we were in a very similar situation. I think most of us would be hard pressed to answer that question with a resounding yes. And if you're one of those people who can, then we thank you and we bless you. And we ask you to tell your friends to do the same thing. And if you're one of the people who answers no, then maybe sit down at dinner tonight, talk with your family and friends like, what could we all be doing to be more careful to protect uh, ourselves, our family, and our community? And in particular this week, of all, of all weeks, our hospital workers, many who are sitting around tables right now trying to decide whether their hospitals as well will go into a crisis standards of care mode. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dr. Scurtis, and to all our panelists and to our journalists uh, for joining us today. And we will be back uh, very soon for yet another regularly scheduled COVID-19 update. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great afternoon.